Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, online folks. It's good to have you all here this morning and be together and worshiping the Lord together. I hope you're all enjoying this wonderful spring that we're having here, a little early spring, middle of January. Can you believe it? It's like, uh, wow, uh, this has been just uh, crazy, just crazy. Um, there's a little silver lining in every cloud, and this is the silver lining of global warming. We're in Minnesota, okay? There's worse places to be, so uh, uh, enjoy that. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here. Thanks to Dan last week for doing such a great job. Uh, starting us off in this new sub-series that we're going in, uh, on the letters to the seven churches in, in the book of Revelation. I'm sitting down again. Uh, it's not my back. My back is wonderful. This is glorious. Now my knee decides to go out, and if that's been kind of going for a while, that happens at a certain age, you know, I guess for certain, some, hey, if you're going to get old, you know, if you have to, uh, I encourage you to try to avoid the arthritis route, it, it gets kind of nasty, but, so yeah, so I'll be getting uh, knee surgery here in a couple weeks, <laughs> yeah. so, well, that's, it's, it's, it's bone on bone, it's been that way for a couple of years, and they've been telling me it's sooner or later that injections are going to wear off, so, uh, yeah, just keep on bringing it into the uh, repair shop and getting the parts, you know, traded in and out. The, the warranty wears out, just get it traded in. But, yeah, we'll see a little bit later on here. Paul talks about how we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's a wonderful treasure, all the glorious inheritance that we have in, in, in Christ. But we have it in these jars of clay, and the jars of clay tend to break down. They wear out, uh, and, and they're unpleasant. But thank God for the treasure. And the treasure is what makes you rich. And that's my point this morning. I don't care how poor you are. If you know this treasure, if you know what you have in Christ, you are rich. So uh, we're looking at the letter to the church of Smyrna today. This is the second of the seven letters. Paul's writing, or, uh, John's writing to seven actual churches, but the seven is also symbolic because he's writing to the church as a whole. But this is the, the, the second of these, uh, these churches, the church of Smyrna. And here's what he says. It's, it's Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. And you'll notice that at the very beginning of every one of these letters, Jesus repeats something that he said in that opening vision uh, that, that, that John had in chapter 1. And here he repeats the words that he's the first and the last. These are the words that identify him as God, because only God can say, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's repeated three times in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and beside me, there is no God, he says. So this is the, the unique identifier as God. Jesus says this. He was dead, but he's come to life. And then Jesus says, I know your affliction, and I know your poverty. And then he adds, even though you are rich, I just... Put that in your little craw and keep it there. Even though you're rich. I know that the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are actually of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw you, throw some of you in prison, so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Now the 10 days is not a literal prediction, it's a euphemism for a short period of time. It's not like one day, but it's not forever. It's for a short period of time. You're going you're gonna to have some affliction. And then he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
And whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Lord, open our ear, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your word, to see more clearly things that we haven't seen as clearly before, and to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Let's start by talking about the synagogue of Satan. Um, this is the first mention of Satan in the book of Revelation. Um, it will not be the last. He, in fact, is one of the main characters throughout the book of Revelation. But here we, we, is this first mention. And, and John presupposes that you know some things about Satan. Uh, he doesn't discuss the whole thing until we get to chapter 12. But um, here's the first mention of Satan. And, and we'll, next week, we're going to come back to the same letter. We're going to spend two weeks on this, at least. And, and, and talk uh, a little bit more about the spiritual warfare background to the, the book of Revelation. But uh, here, here, here's the deal, the synagogue of Satan. Uh, in Rome, if you were going to be a good card-carrying Roman citizen, you had to pay tribute to the local deities. You had to pay tribute to the pantheon, the Roman pantheon, uh, the, the major deities in Rome. And you had to pay tribute and pay honor to the emperor. Uh, and around the time uh, that John's writing this... Uh, they're, they're, they're really beginning to enforce this idea that the emperor is divine. And so to honor the emperor means you confess that Caesar is Lord and God. That's a confession that you're supposed to make. And, 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 and you'd, you'd, at least once a year, you had to uh, make that confession by offering a little bit of incense. It varied from location to location, but some kind of activity to show that you're a good, card-carrying uh, Roman citizen. And this was woven into the fabric of, of, of Roman society. Uh, they would have these festivals, the games you've heard about. And um, these are just ways of uniting the, 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 the empire. Let's bring us all together and have a good time watching people get fed to lions and, and, and things like that. Um, and, and part of those games were about offering tribute to the, the Roman gods and to the local deities. Because they're the ones that are, you're, you're entrusting to, to, to bless you. And, and so if people don't pay tribute to the gods, well, then the gods get angry and then you're not going to be blessed. So it's important that everybody honors the gods. Uh, the Roman gods, the local deities, and that uh, you pay tribute to, to, to Caesar. They'd have other kind of gatherings, business gatherings, uh, you know, the, uh, the guild of all those who, who make wheelbarrows or what have you. They, they, they'd have uh, uh, get-togethers, and they'd usually pay tribute to the deity who was the patron deity of their guild, of their occupation. Even at dinner parties, if you invite some friends over, often you'd do it in the honor of some deity or other. It was just woven into the fabric of, 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 of Roman life. Um, and so you, everyone was expected to go along with this. If you didn't go along with this, if you didn't pay tribute to the deities and, and to, to the emperor, well, you're just not a good citizen. At best, you're, you're unpatriotic. And what you might find is that you, you lose your friends and you stop getting invited to dinner parties. If you're not going to go along with a little tribute to the deities, well, then... You don't get invited. You might lose your job. You might lose your friends. You're certainly not going to be very upwardly mobile in this, this culture. Uh, things aren't going to go well for you. Now, the thing is, is that Jews had been uh, exempt from those kind of rules. Going back to about the second century B.C., uh, the Romans found that trying to get the Jews to conform to all the ways of Rome, it was just too much trouble. They, they, they wouldn't conform. <laughs> They had too many of their own particular things. They wouldn't honor the gods. They have their one god that they worship, and that's it. And, um, and, and so finally, Rome kind of came up with a truce with the Jews, and, and that is that, okay, you don't have to honor the deities. You can go ahead and honor your one true god, and you don't have to, to, to honor the, the emperor. We'll, we'll, we'll let that go. 
Sometimes uh, they, they wouldn't even print coins with, with the face of the emperor on it because Jews would be so offended by that. That's, that, that, that's idolatry. And so just to avoid the hassle, Rome wouldn't, wouldn't print those things. So the Jews had been exempt from all those requirements, which, by the way, didn't make other citizens necessarily all that happy. Because they say, look, we, we, you know, we, we all pay our taxes and we're all part of this whole thing. Why can't these Jews just go along with the program? Uh, they always have to have their own particular things. And that was the beginning of anti-Semitism. It starts around the second century B.C. And that's the first time you start to hear uh, people spreading rumors about Jews and, 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 and uh, kind of inciting hatred towards the Jews. But they were exempt from this. Now, the Christians originally were seen as part of Judaism because all the early Christians were Jewish. And so it was just seen as a sect of Judaism, and so it fell under the protection that the Jews had under Rome. But as time went on, and Christians began to evangelize more and more Gentiles, and as time went on, the traditional Jews became more and more disturbed by the Christian claim that the Messiah had already come, and even worse than that, their claim that the Messiah was God incarnate. And... And that prayers could be prayed, need to be prayed to this, their view, just this human being. That was, that, was, that was absolute heresy. And so around the early 80s, we find the first anathemas being pronounced against Christians. Jews would uh, declare Christians to be anathema, which means that they were kicked out of the synagogue and they were under a curse. That's how the, the Jews saw them. They were under this curse. And, and since they kicked the Jews out of the Judaism, they're no longer under that protection. Um, and then what began to happen, because the, many Jews saw Christians as being arch heretics, absolute heretics, uh, they thought they'd be doing the world the, a favor by getting rid of them, and so they would report them to the Roman authorities. Okay, these folks here, they're not you know, paying honor to the emperor. They're not uh, going along with paying honor to the, the the local deities, and they're not under anyone's protection. And see, Rome wouldn't go after people. They, Rome, the Romans didn't care what you believed about anything. They just wanted to keep peace. You know, you don't have to believe any of it. Just go through the motions for crying out loud. Be a good citizen. So they wouldn't bother you. They didn't go out looking for this. But if, it, if someone presented them with an, an informant and said, hey, this person's not going along with stuff, well, then they had to act. They had to act. And this was the beginning of anti-Semitism in church history. It starts really early on in the second century. As Christians get more and more irritated that these Jewish neighbors are turning them into the Roman authorities, that plants the seed of uh, hostility between Christians and Jews. And then they start to be referred to as the, the God killers, deicide. And, and, and there's a long legacy of anti-Semitism that runs all throughout church history, it really comes to full blossom in, in the theology, or at least in the, not in theology, but the sayings of Martin Luther. He had some nasty things to say, and Hitler built on those. You can't understand the Holocaust unless you understand the whole history of anti-Semitism uh, that, that was reading in the church. A great book on this, by the way, is by David Rausch uh, called A Legacy of Hatred. If you want to have your eyes open up to just the dark side of church history, well, well, well there it is. So here's the thing. Uh, Jesus refers to the synagogue of Satan. Now, he's not just saying, he's not just slapping a label on things the way people do today. Oh, you're a liberal. Oh, you're a this or that. And we slap labels on just as a way of saying you're a poopy face or something. Uh, That's not what Jesus is doing here. Um, 
he's, he's describing something. Okay, the very name Satan means the, uh, the, the adversary. He's also known as the accuser. Uh, the one who opposes, right? The Hasatan, the one who opposes. And so right now, the ones who are opposing the spreading of the kingdom, the ones who are opposing the gospel are these Jews who are, um, well, they're not walking in the, the, the ways of, of faithful Jews, according to John, uh, because they're turning in these Christians. They're opposing the advance of the kingdom of God. And so to say it's a synagogue of Satan, it just means that this is the center of the opposition, at least at this point in time in history, this was the, the, the center of the opposition, trying to extinguish the church, trying to do away with it. So they report them to the authorities. And then, if, if you're lucky, you would get banished, like John was, and, and exiled to a distant island. If you were less lucky, you'd be executed. So this was apparently happening in Smyrna. And uh, people were turning these Christians in. And they're being ostracized and uh, on top of being just poor and afflicted, now they're being turned over and they're uh, uh, facing possible execution. So then Jesus says, I know, I know that you're poor and afflicted. Um, now, Smyrna was a, a pretty wealthy city. It was a, it was a port city. It had a good river going inland. And a lot of things set it up to be commercially successful. So as a whole, uh, people of Smyrna were, were, were wealthy. So why are these Christians poor and afflicted? And while Christianity drew largely from the poorer class, they also drew, brought, drew some rich people, some wealthier people. The most likely explanation for why Jesus says, I know that you're poor and afflicted, is because um, they're, not, they're not going along with the festivities of Rome. They're not being the good Roman citizens. They're staying true to their faith. And they're not bounding their knee to, to other deities. And so they're being ostracized by, by, by friends and by family, and they're losing their jobs. And now they're being turned into these Roman authorities, so they're poor and afflicted because they're standing up to, for their faith. But Jesus says, I'm sorry, but it's about to get a, a whole lot worse because um, you're going to be thrown into prison. I mean, I, I'll give you a warning. He says, you're, you're going to be thrown into prison for a little while, uh, for 10 days, and you're going to be tested. And being in those prisons would have tested you because they weren't pleasant. They were like five-star hotels. They were pretty miserable. You get thrown into this brick, this stone cell. And uh, minimal clothing, no protection against the cold, no protection against the heat, uh, minimal food and lousy food at that. You gotta, you're on your own to fend off the rats. Sometimes they'd hold you in shackles. And, and it was just a miserable kind of situation. And a lot of it depended on how how nice or how mean your, your, your guards were, but it was well known that guards who would get bored found inter ways of entertaining themselves, taking care of these uh, prisoners by taunting them and, and doing other things. So it, was, it, it would have tested you. It, it was a miserable situation, and you don't know how long you're going to be there. Uh, for 10 days, it'll be a short while, but that was up to the proconsul, which was kind of the judge of every given region. If, if they wanted to hear a case, they'd hear it. If they didn't, they wouldn't. Maybe they have a busy schedule. Maybe there's other things on their mind. Who knows? And you had no recourse. There's no, like, you can't go out and get a lawyer and sue or anything like that. You're just going to be there until the, the, you get hurt. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says, okay, you're going to suffer for a little while. But then he says, be faithful unto death. Because you might be thinking, oh, we'll suffer a little while. However bad it is, I'll, at least we'll get over it. We can go back to our jobless, friendless life and, and live happily ever after. But no, it, it, he says, you're going to suffer a little while. 
and then be faithful unto death. Why does he say that? And the answer is that in the first century, prisons weren't, weren't places that you sentenced people to. You didn't get sentenced to prison. Prison's where you went while you awaited getting sentenced. Uh, the idea of sending someone away to prison, that doesn't come around to the, to the late Middle Ages. And that's when we create penitentiaries. And penitentiaries originally were supposed to be places where you go to do penance. That's why they were called penitentiaries. And you go to do penance because you're a bad boy or girl, and, 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 and so you, you think about your sins, you're supposed to reflect on your sins, and you, get, you do prayer, and, and hopefully you get reformed and can return back to society. That's what penitentiaries are for. Now, they've evolved since then. <laughs> they don't quite play that role anymore, but that, that's, that's how they originally were. But back in these days, uh, the, the reason you went to prison was simply to be held until you got sentenced, whenever that might be. And, and so it, when you're sentenced, if you're a Christian, one of two things happen. Either you're going to confess uh, and, and, and repent. Uh, you, you, they would make you curse Christ and honor the, and, and, and confess Caesar to be Lord and God. In that case, you get off free. Maybe it's a little fine, but otherwise you get off free. Or you don't. You're going to hold fast. And if, and if you're holding fast to your profession of faith, one of two things will happen. Um, You'll either be banished, if you're lucky, or you'll be executed. And if you're executed, one of two things will happen. Either the, the proconsul has mercy on you and you're beheaded, nice and quick and clean, no problem. That's if you're lucky. If you're not lucky, well, you're going to get crucified, or you'll get fed to lions, or you'll get burned alive. Uh, one of the three. Um, not, not, not altogether happy options. And so, so you're, you're, you're facing this. So it's not like, oh, you'll suffer a little while, but then you get out, you'll suffer a little while, and then it'll be over. Why? Because you're either going to be banished or you're going to be put to death. Be faithful unto death, which is, by the way, the, one of the most dominant motifs throughout the book of Revelation. Be faithful unto death, and you receive a crown of life. So, so Jesus says, in the face of all of this, he says, I want you to remember that though you're poor and afflicted right now, and though you're going to be thrown into prison, it's going to be nasty, and, and you're going to face banishment or execution, uh, I, I don't want you to fear any of that. Don't, don't be afraid, because remember that you're rich. Remember that you're rich. And so you don't need to fear what you're about to suffer. It's kind of weird, because suffering is what we usually fear, right? And the reason we're fearing, afraid of it is because it's going to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you're, what you're about to suffer. What, what, what else is there to be afraid of, then? <laughs> Uh, but in, in the face of all, now Jesus says a lot of crazy things, right? We're, we're used to Jesus saying a lot of crazy things. The first will be last, the last will be first. Better to serve than it is to be served. Uh, you know, lose your life and you'll find it. Love your enemies and all the rest. So a lot of crazy things, but this is right up there towards the top. I mean, put yourself in the situation where you're, you know, I imagine myself as a, a father of four, me and my wife, and we got two teenagers and we're all Christians. We all just, you know, we're baptized, we're committed to this. And now we hear this news. We're already poor because I lost my job. We're already ostracized. No one will talk to us because we're not supporting the local gods. They blame the problems of Rome on us because we're not supporting the local deities. So life is already hard, but now we're going to be thrown into prison for a little while, and then we're going to face banishment or execution. You might just have to watch your kids be fed to lions, and yet Jesus shows up and says, oh, by the way, you're rich, uh, and you don't have to be afraid of this. It's like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? I mean, I'm glad for the, 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 the crown I'm going to get. Yeah, for sure. He says, be faithful, you will get a crown. The word there is Stephanus. 
Uh, it, it's not, there's a word diadem, which, you know, it's a royal crown that kings would wear. Stephanos was the kind of crown you got when you won a race. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's the wreath that the, the, the winners would get. It's like a gold medal. It's a badge of honor. You're going to receive, you're going to be honored when the kingdom comes. I'm really glad I'm going to be honored when the kingdom comes. But if my two kids are going to be fed the lions, my wife's going to be fed the lions, and I'm going to be the last one uh, to, to be devoured. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, that doesn't quite cut it. <laughs> this is, uh, I'm glad I have that hope, but it doesn't assuage the fear of watching my kids get fed by lions. It's crazy. It's not, and, 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 and it's nuts. And yet, if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and I've got good reasons for thinking Jesus is Lord, and if, you're, if Jesus isn't your Lord, you want to find out why someone might actually consider making him Lord, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to explain to you why I think Jesus is Lord. But uh, I've got good reasons for thinking he's Lord, and that means that I have to pay attention to the crazy stuff he says. <laughs> and so do you. We have to take this seriously. Uh, it must be possible. It must be possible to feel like you're rich, feel like you're wealthy. And it must be possible to have this tremendous courage even when you are facing poverty, and even when you're facing affliction, and even when you're facing being ostracized and betrayed by people, even when you're facing possible banishment and facing execution, it must be possible in the midst of that situation to feel rich, to feel wealthy, and to feel incredibly courageous, to not fear it. How is it possible? This is the question I want us to be wrestling with here. How is it possible to be, on the one hand, really, really poor, and poor not just materially, but poor in the sense that you're facing banishment or execution? How is it possible to be in that situation and at the same time be incredibly wealthy to the point where you don't fear any of the suffering that comes from your being poor? It must be possible. Because Jesus says it here. It must be possible because we find Paul illustrating this at different points in his ministry. I don't have time to get into it. I had to cut off this whole section for time's sake. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 4, Paul there talks about how we have, we have a treasure in this jar of clay. I mentioned it earlier. A jar of clay just being this, this physical existence of ours. Our pre-transformed bodies in this pre-transformed physical world. We live in jars of clay bodies in a jar of clay world and it's wearing down and prone to suffering and all the rest. But inside this jar of clay, this achy jar of clay, is a treasure. And the treasure refers to just the, the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. All that's incorporated with that. And 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, yeah, we have this treasure in this jar of clay. He's drawing this contrast here. As sucky as the jar of clay is, that's how great the treasure is, okay? There's this incredible contrast there. And, and it wasn't just about the crown that you're going to get when you die and when, when, when God's kingdom fully comes. It wasn't just about this. Paul cashes into it in the present time, in the present. So he says that, that we're, 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 we're persecuted, but, but we're never crushed. We're perplexed, but we're never driven to despair. We're struck down, but we're never destroyed. In fact, at one point, Paul says in Romans 8 that, that the sufferings of this present age, the sufferings in this jar of clay body, in this jar of clay broken world, all that suffering can't even be compared to the glory of this treasure that we have, the glory that awaits us. And what awaits us, the, the hope that we have, is part of the treasure that we carry about in us. And yet we're to cash in on that treasure now. Paul has, says, because of this treasure, 
But all the beatings he takes, all the suffering he takes, the shipwrecks, and all the other things he went through, yeah, it hurts, it, it's not fun, it's, 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 it's terrible, and yet what gets him through it is that he knows he's got this treasure. And he knows that even though he's poor in terms of the circumstances of this world, uh, actually, he's very, very rich. So here's confession time. I, I, I have to confess something here. This treasure to me has become so precious. As I watch this world get crazier and crazier, and it seems like it's unraveling uh, left and right, I have just been hanging on to this treasure, hanging on to this hope um, that uh, is, is, is more precious than gold. It is my lifeline, the inheritance that I have in Christ, knowing that, that, that uh, this jar of clay world doesn't have the last word, that suffering and death doesn't have the last word. I've been hanging on to that. But I'll tell you, I, I, I'm kind of struggling with it. And I always made a commitment to the church that I, I'm going to be honest. And if, I, if, if, if there's a conflict and incongruity in my life, I'm going to share it because I find that if my incongruities are often shared by other people's incongruities and somehow it helps to just kind of know that we're having incongruities together. <laughs> Let us unite around our incongruities. Here's my incongruity. I, that, you know, the New Testament teaches us to expect the Lord to come back at any time, right? Uh, we're, we're to always be vigilant and watchful. He'll return like a thief in the night. And, and, and we're to be you know, found busy about the master's work when he returns. There's a whole lot of teachings on that. And, and, and we're to be looking forward to it. And the manifestation of Jesus at the end of the age or the, the return of Jesus, it's referred to in different ways. The revelation uh, unveiling of Jesus at the, edge of the, at the end of the age. And we don't know what that's going to look like, but we're, we're, we're taught to expect it, to yearn for it, to look. It's, it's supposed to be good news. And yes, there's going to be tribulation, and yes, there's going to be a final judgment, but God's going to set the world right, and he'll bring an end to suffering and misery and injustice and oppression and all the rest. And we're going to be looking forward to that, praying for that. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's good news. Uh, and, and here's the thing, uh, no one knows when that end will be, uh, and anyone who claims to know is either very uninformed or off a rocker or what have you, uh, don't listen to them, because Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. But Jesus also says, uh, learn the lesson of the fig tree. That's a simple lesson. When the, the figs are starting to blossom, when the fig leaves are prospering, well, then you know summer is coming. And when fig leaves are dying, then you know winter is coming. Real simple lesson. We don't know when, but we're supposed to be assessing seasons, seeing what's going on. And as I look around the world right now, and maybe this is true of you as well, I see a lot of fig, fig leaves dying. <laughs> a whole lot of fig leaves dying. You may have noticed. All over the place. I, 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 I look into the climate science stuff, and I see a lot of fig leaves dying, a lot of signs like, whoa, this is, we're, in, we're in some serious trouble here. But it's not just that. You look at, at all the markers of society and politics and the polarization that's going on and just the thing, way that things are crumbling. And it gives me good reason to think that the Lord actually could come back on my watch. You know, we're supposed to expect that anyways, but then you see the evidence that it could actually be here. So I should be getting excited. The Lord is coming back. It's going to set the world right. And it is my own, it's my hope. I put all my hope on that, and I, I hang on to that, but I will admit to you that I'm conflicted. I can't say that I see the glory of what's coming to such a degree that it, it takes away my fear of what we're about to suffer. 
or what my kids are going to suffer and what my grandkids are going to suffer. Um, I, I, I hang on to that hope, you know, and I, I catch glimpses of the glory, but it's not yet enough to make me excited about what's going to be coming here. And I know that there's Christians out there that say, well, hey, you know, Jesus is going to come back and, and he'll, he won't let you suffer. He's going to rescue us out of the suffering. He's going to take us out of this world and then the world will go to hell in a handbasket, but it won't affect us because we're going to be over there and la, la, land up in heaven. And that is just a bunch of silliness. I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I, people who believe it, since I used to believe that, but see, that, that, that escapist theology, the book of Revelation is all about be faithful unto death. You wouldn't say be faithful unto death unless there's a possibility that you're going to die, right? The whole thing is about martyrdom is about bearing witness to Christ by what you're willing to suffer. And to think that Jesus doesn't let his people go through suffering. Look a little bit at church history. Look at the Bible here. We'll see next week or a couple of weeks when we get to Pergamum. Antipas got martyred. Christians have suffered throughout history. They're still suffering to this day. Don't tell me that. Jesus always rescues his people from suffering. No, it, 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 uh, it's going to happen. And what I find is that, honestly, if I'm honestly looking at this future, there's a dark, I see a bad moon arising. You know, there's, a, there's clouds on the horizon, folks, and the world's getting warmer and warmer, and the weather's getting more and more chaotic, and society's getting more and more chaotic, and who knows where it's going to go from here. It might be a little speed bump we're getting over, but, but it might be something more long-lasting. I don't know. I have the hope on the other side of that. But at the same time, I can't say that I am fearless. I wish I, I wish I could. Follow me. I have no doubts whatsoever. I see clearly the glory coming. Why? The mayhem that's going to be hitting us, all the immigration problems we're going to be having in the next five years, watch it as the more places become uninhabitable. It's just going to be so much pain and suffering, and, I, and I'm seeing that. I don't feel rich. Now, I, I, I stumbled upon this passage this week, and it's really been ministering to me. And I wanted us to, to, to read this, and this will be the rest of my sermon here. Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this. He's praying, and he prays. As I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, Ephesians, a spirit of wisdom and revelation... As you come to know him, come to know Christ, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. Lord, help us to internalize this prayer. He's praying. The Father gives them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they can see something they couldn't see before. He says, as you come to know Christ. Now, just notice this. As Paul is praying for them, he says, as you come to know Christ, he's praying that we'll give the spirit of wisdom and revelation, which already tells us that until we know Christ fully, which means that we'll be like him. First John 3, we'll see him as he is because we shall be like him. Until that point, we should be always... Wanting to know Christ more, more deeply. There's more of Christ to know. Um, and, and in the process of coming to know Christ, that's when we get a spirit of wisdom and, and revelation. In other words, in the kingdom, lock this in. There's no room for coasting. Maybe you said, well, I know Jesus, and you've been saying that for 45 years, and that's wonderful. Hallelujah. 
but, but are, are you getting to know Jesus? Because until you fully know him, there's still more to know. And it's not about getting in more information, about getting more facts, doing for a few more Bible studies. That's all great, but it's not about information. It's coming to know, to experience, to get on the inside, to be able to see things the way he sees things and feel about things the way he feels about things. And yeah, becoming more like him in every respect, to really know him, getting on the inside. And as we get to know him, then we, 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 our eyes are opened up. We get a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It means also, if Paul's praying for these folks, that it, it, it's very possible to be a Christian, to be saved, to be a child of God, and not have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. If that wasn't the case, then Paul wouldn't have to pray for them. In fact, Paul's assuming that they don't yet have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and they haven't yet gotten the full unveiling of, of, of who Jesus is. That's why he's praying for them. So it's possible that you know Jesus on some level and you're walking with God and yet what defines you is the jar of clay world. What defines you moment by moment is the jar of clay pain and the jar of clay fear that you have. The jar of clay anxiety that you have looking at the future. That's what you experience and you don't cash in on this treasure that Paul's talking about. You don't have access to it. It doesn't benefit you any because you haven't got the spirit of wisdom and revelation and to have the eyes of your heart opened up to see, to perceive. The word he uses there, perceive, it means to look into, not just glance at something, but to look into it, to perceive. And the depth that you haven't had before, to perceive what is the, the glory of the inheritance that you have. And then he says that, that, that he's pray, the fact that he's praying for them shows you that, and this is the one that got me that you, you can't think your way into this. You're not going to reason your way into this. You need the Holy Spirit for this one. He's praying that the Lord will open us, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may be able to see something we otherwise couldn't see. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit opening. It's a supernatural thing where you can begin to grasp the full hope that you have in Christ, the hope to which you're called, and you begin to grasp the glorious inheritance that you have in Christ Jesus. And you get to begin to grasp, begin to perceive and experience the immeasurable greatness of the power that is at work in us. You can know all about it. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But it's not going to make you fearless facing this, this future that we're, we're, we're facing. It's not going to give you that spirit of courage unless you're experiencing it, unless, there's, unless it's tangible, unless it's ministering to you in a powerful way. And that, folks, for that we need the, the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And if Paul's assuming that the Ephesians haven't had that revelation and that wisdom yet, I think it's pretty safe to assume that we haven't had that revelation yet, at least not fully. Maybe there's a few people out here or online that you, you know Christ fully, and you're just like him. Uh, you know, you, you see him exactly as he is because you're just like him. Hallelujah, good for you. Wow. Uh, the rest of us are, are still in process, so pray for us. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it's an ongoing thing. So the process of, 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 of receiving this, of getting to know Christ, is what gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And what I found is I began to like really pray for this. God, open my eyes that I can see this in, in, in a way that, 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 that gives me more strength and more courage as I'm heading into the, this future. I found that there's a, there's a part of me that resists this. And, and maybe this, this is another incongruity in my part, and some, maybe some of you can relate to this. Part of me resists this. And I think it's because I have so throughout my life, associated the second coming of Jesus with this left-behind escapism thing. And I, and I think that that is so utterly, utterly contrary to the whole thrust of the gospel. 
which is about bringing, not leaving earth to go to heaven, but about bringing heaven down to earth. And I'm so opposed to that, that you ever had this happen to you where we, we, there's a, like a biblical truth that just gets polluted because it got associated with crappy stuff and you have a hard time getting the authentic back because of all the pollution? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? So it's like the good news of the second coming becomes silliness news to me because it gets wrapped up in all the other kind of stuff. And so there's a part of me that resisted this. It's like there's a part of me, if I fully cash in on this treasure, if I feel this joy and peace, God's shalom, basically, God's shalom, joy and peace, with this treasure that I have in this jar of clay, if I were to allow myself to really, really benefit from that, well, I feel like I'm escaping, like I'm opting out, like I'm not in solidarity with the suffering of this world. And we are called to be incarnational, right? We follow the ways of the incarnate one, and so we're called to be incarnational. We're called to to care about the world here and now and to enter into the suffering of the world here and now, to not block out the pain of the world here and now, uh, to go la, 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 la. No, we're to be honest with our own pain and honest with the pain of the world. We're called to be involved in that. But we're also called to pursue this treasure and to catch in on this treasure. How do you do both simultaneously? That's, that, that's the thing here. But I'm finding that part of me feels like I'm copping out if I... If I get this peace that passes all understanding and joy unspeakable while I'm facing this future, how unfair that I have this and, no, and, and, and not everyone does. It feels like I'm cheating or something. I don't know. I'm not in solidarity. And then how is it even possible to hold these two things in tension anyways? As I went to the Lord with this this week, here's kind of what I got back. And it wasn't a vocal, you know, thus says the Lord, but it's a sense. And like, How do you hold these two things together? I'm... I'm Poor and yet I'm rich. Jar of clay and yet I got this treasure. And, 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 and what I got was the Lord kind of just said, well, I do that all the time. I do it all the time. If you think about it, he does. You know, in Revelations 5, we'll see that the, the, the slain lamb is brought to the, it says, to the middle of the throne. This is really kind of strange. To the middle of the throne. He's not on the throne. He's in the middle of the throne. And part of what John's communicating there is that the slain lamb, he's the one who bears all the pain and the sin of the world. And by being on the throne of God, it's his way of communicating that God has taken the pain of this world and made it his own. He's brought it into the very heart of God. Um, God has internalized this. And so God knows the pain of the world from the inside. God, he suffers. He knows from the inside what it is to be that Palestinian parent who's horrified. You see that your child's Legs just got blown off, and there's no anesthesia in the hospital. God knows what that's like from the inside. He holds that person in existence. He's omniscient. He's, he's, he's omnipresent, and he's pure love. And the, and, and, and the lamb is in the middle of the throne. God's taken that pain and made it his own. That's what the incarnation means. That's what the cross means. He also knows what it's like to be the terrified parent whose child is now being held hostage, or whose husband or wife is being held hostage. He's on the inside of that terror. So you, you, you see that in the book of Revelation. But at the same time, you find in the book of Revelation, and you find this reflected throughout the Bible, that around the throne of God, there is joy, and there's perpetual praise, and there's perpetual celebration. How is that possible? God is the maximal sufferer, but also the maximal celebrator. And part of what I got this week, I want to share with you, is this, that part of what that immeasurable greatness of the power that we need the God to open our eyes to Unveil the eyes of our heart to help us to perceive, look clearly, look deeply into this truth. That, that, that um, we are, that, that God's in, internalized the pain of this world on the inside. 
and, and that <clears throat> we're able to do in a little way what he does in this maximal way, that the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us enables us to love more profoundly precisely because we're able to hold on to the pain of this world while also having this treasure on the inside. In fact, what I am seeing is that far from that being an escape from the world, like you're going to la, 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 going to escape the pain of the world. No, far from that, when we cash in on the treasure, when we really have our eyes opened up to see the full glory and joy, uh, the incomparable joy that awaits us, and the treasure that we carry around these earthen vessels, when we can really see that, it makes us better at bearing the pain of this world. If you're defined by the jar of clay pain of this world, then you've got nothing to offer the world that it doesn't already have. You're you're in misery with everybody else. You're in solidarity with the misery, but what good does that do if you don't have something to bring the misery? But if you're operating out of the center of shalom that we have by virtue of the fact that we are children of God, hallelujah, we're in Christ Jesus, and we've been made rich. However poor we may be, we've been made rich. If we operate out of that wealth, well, now we can bring a peace that the world does not give. We have something to bring to other people, to invite them in on, to bring some relief from and some hope in the midst of their pain and the midst of their, their, their problems. I found I had to give myself permission to go ahead and enjoy the things of God in the midst of this painful world. I bet there's a few people that are in that kind of, you feel righteous if you're miserable along with the misery of the world. You know, and we need to be in touch with the misery of the world and not these Pollyanna Christians going la, la, la and pretending the, the problems aren't there. No, it's really, really bad, except for how bad it is. But, but that the, the badness shouldn't define us to the core of our being, not at all, because we carry about this treasure in this jar of clay. Hallelujah. And that treasure is our hope. That treasure is a glorious inheritance. And that treasure is a measurable greatness of the power that's really working us. In a world that is... In despair, it's okay to give yourself permission to have joy. Uh, in a world that's hungry, it's okay to enjoy a meal. You know, it, it, in a world that is feeling hopeless, it's okay to cash in on. You cash in as much of that hope as you can because we're going to need it heading into the future. Uh, that is our lifeline. And so you cash in on as much of that. Give yourself permission. The sad world. I, I wish that I, not everyone has this. And I pray someday everyone will. But it won't help the world by me not cashing in on it. I'm only good for the world if I do cash in on treasure that I carry about in this jar of clay. However poor you are, you maybe are poor. Maybe you don't drive the best car. You don't have the, live in the nicest house. Maybe you don't live in a house at all. Maybe you live in an apartment, a real bad apartment. I don't know. Maybe you don't have the nicest clothes and eat the finest food. Maybe you don't have two nickels to rub together. But if you know Jesus Christ and you know the hope that you have in him, you are rich. Hallelujah. You are rich. Hallelujah. Remember that. Carry that. So I want to I, 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 I make this, I, I encourage us to make this a prayer of our heart. God, be giving us this, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to open the eyes of our heart, to see, to perceive the hope and the glory and the power that's at work in us. Uh, and, and to make that a regular prayer of ours because it's got to be a Holy Spirit thing. On a natural level, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. What could possibly make you fearless going into this future? But on a supernatural level, it makes all the sense in the world. So I want to just close with this uh, corporate prayer together. If you're online, I encourage you to, to pray this along with me. If you're able to, would you stand? And um, I'll pray the first line, and I, I ask you to, to, to pray the second line, and we'll end it all together. 
Lord, use this to open the eyes of our heart. The Holy Spirit, we together pray that you give each of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We know and love you, the eternal God, our Lord and Savior. Open the eyes of our heart to perceive more clearly the magnificent hope to which you have called us. Open the eyes of our heart to the glorious inheritance that we, with all of God's people, have in Christ. Open the eyes of our heart to see and embrace the immeasurable greatness of your power that is at work in us. Open the eyes of our heart so we may more deeply appreciate the imperishable treasure that we have in Christ. A treasure that cannot be stolen, cannot be destroyed, and cannot be tainted. A treasure that abides unscathed when our jar of clay bodies and all that is made of clay eventually fades away. And altogether, may our awareness of the glorious and imperishable treasure that resides in our jar of clay bodies bring us comfort in times of sorrow, give us peace in times of stress and anxiety, and fill us with hope when we are tempted to despair. Amen and amen, amen, amen. Make it your prayer, make it your prayer. Hey, amen. Hallelujah, you are rich. I want to encourage you, if you have any need that could use prayer, uh, come on up here, and uh, we have some prayer folks up front that would love to pray with you, or we have uh, prayer ministers online. Take advantage of that. Uh, And don't forget the Musecast on Tuesday and gathering groups throughout the week. Take advantage of them. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world, and remember that you are rich.